Welcome to the Opposable Thumbs podcast. Opposable Thumbs is a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative. Oh, before I. Oh, oh, hey. stop. Er, record scratch. Puppy breaks. Er, wicka, wicka, what? Yeah. Rita, I would like to ask you a question sure. about the pronunciation of your last name. Ah, thank you for asking. It's Blake. Yes. Blake. Okay. Mm-hmm. Easy enough. Yep. Okay, I'll start over. Welcome to the Opposable Thumbs podcast. Opposable Thumbs is a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative challenge every two weeks. And we talk about our accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Rita Blake is our guest on this episode. Greetings, Rita. Hello, hello. My name is Rob Ray. I use the he, his gender pronoun, and I run the Exoskeleton Art Space in Los Angeles and host a frequent art openings and events there. And I'm a user experience designer in Los Angeles. Uh, my name's Taylor Hokinson, and I'm based in Chicago, where I'm an artist, engineer, DIY, and CAD CAM evangelist, and I'm a he, his kind of guy. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rita. I am a scientist and an artist, I guess, a scientist by training and uh, an artist by self-teaching. Uh, I work uh, as a nanoscientist and a science educator. So I work at the California Nanosystems Institute at the University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA. So I'm based in Los Angeles. And I work there doing nanoscience education, nanoscience outreach, developing uh, ex- uh, experiments, demonstrations for people all based around nanoscience and i also teach at art center college of design in pasadena and i teach a few different uh, classes there yeah i taught classes in uh, nanoscience i teach a sensing class and i've taught a few other things there too so uh besides teaching and doing all of that kind of educational stuff i also have a small a small sort of art uh, practice and uh so i i tinker with uh, art projects that are informed by my experiences specifically as a scientist a small art practice, Rita? One might say a nano <laughs> oh. a nano Hey-o. art practice. I can't believe I you got like, this wow. challenge. Uh, ho, yeah, you thought zing. I was being a dick, Rev? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, Taylor's really bagging on her. <laughs> it's okay. I'm a scientist. I scientists love puns, so uh, yeah, yeah. you guys are totally nice. you guys are totally fine. And yeah, you get you gave me uh, such an appropriate challenge. Seriously. I, were you were you guys aware of I, I mean, I know you were aware of my background, but the it was the uh, it's the previous week's guest who designed the challenge. Is that right? That's right. So well, were, were they aware of my background? In this case, it was us because we had a guest a guestless. Wait, oh, right, we right. were guestless last time. But yeah, I it had Rob had had initially been working. Um, I had not looked into your practice at all yet, and so oh. I th- I think we just kind of backed into that one. So that's really funny. We did. Yeah, yeah huh, that's great. Interesting. Yeah, I should point out that Rita is selling herself short on the on the art side. I mean, this does not look like <laughs> the website of a scientist first. Do, do your scientist colleagues ever um, ever uh, make fun of you for your aestheticization of these projects? No, not at all. I think it's. I think a lot of it is sort of a, sort of a self imposed thing, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. since I've had my life's training as a scientist, it it really took a long time for me to be, I guess, sort of comfortable calling myself an artist in any fashion. It really mm-hmm. wasn't until I was in graduate school at UCLA and I made a very sort of conscious decision to try to meld. Uh, the arts and the sciences because I had an interest in both and didn't want to drop one at the expense of the other that I started meeting sort of like-minded people and got connected to the um, UCLA Art Sci Center that was doing uh, a lot of efforts in trying to merge the arts and the sciences in interesting ways. And so 
I had my my PhD mentor at UCLA where I was doing my nanoscience research, but uh, I kind of got a secondary mentor who was in the design media arts department, uh, Professor Victoria Vesna, and she was the one that kind of nurtured me in my art practice. But it's still, I guess, something that I, I'm always a little hesitant to to call myself, especially amongst uh, other people who have, you know, their artistry as their, I guess, sort of primary profession and primary training. So I'm always like, oh, you know, I'm just a tinkerer <laughs> by comparison, or at least wow. that's how I feel, here, you know. We're here to tear that shit down, Rob. Am I right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Jeez. Yeah, I've been. <laughs> I was just telling a student the other day that designers are just uptight artists, and she was like, "You're not wrong." Although I'm sure it's <laughs> at, at some point I'm going to really aggravate my colleagues but um i've I've had it up to here with those with those silos man because I, I feel like i dip into the sciences a lot and i feel like the people in the sciences are pretty cool about it i mean if your stuff goes then they're not going to give you a hard time i've been thinking about the, the difference between art and design quite a bit mm-hmm. um on my bike the other day i was thinking about this and i was like <laughs> on your on your 14 hours of weekly commute yeah of cycling yeah it's gone down lately but uh yeah um because I, so I had heard a quote that made me super mad about someone articulating the differences. And then I was like, well, if I give him a fair shake on it, what, what, what would I say a, a difference could be, yep. you know? And I'm not sure I agree with this, but, but it's something I thought, which was that in a lot of ways, t- design is a practice to create clarity, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, where art, a, a function of art might be to, to challenge that clarity, could you also say one answers questions and one asks questions? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Just throwing that out. But see, even as I say that, I don't agree. <laughs> yeah, which one is which? <laughs> right, yeah. And and I think it's because also, right, like art and design are just terms that are so heavily loaded, mm-hmm. as is the word science, right? Like, sure. Like all of this, these sort of words we use to sort of create large groupings of practices and people just aren't effective. Well, and especially as they become sort of so formalized by our education, right? Like uh, education that we've, yes. that we've received since kindergarten where we, and it only gets worse as we grow older, where we take such specific subjects and get degrees yeah. in such specific things. So even if, so even if I do have an art practice that, that is very active, it's, it's simply a matter of, well, I don't have a degree in it. So is it even valid to call myself that? Which I know is, right. is really actually quite silly because if, if you, if you practice or do a thing, then, then that's it. I mean, you're doing the thing. You don't need a degree to do the thing, but mm-hmm. it's, it's just a thing that's so ingrained culturally that it's really hard to break away from that. Even as I try to kind of even make it a life's mission of mine to actively break away from those those limitations that those terms bring. Rita, do you have any opinions about uh, who is the fellow who considered himself a biohacker, which the, the term kind of puts me on edge, but he, um, I think he was trying to use CRISPR to change his genome so that he could build muscle more easily. And it, I think it didn't work out, but... I remember who you're talking about, and I don't remember his name, but yeah, I remember reading the stories of, I think he was at some type of conference, right? And he yep. just stood up there and injected himself with mm-hmm. with, uh, with CRISPR material, and yeah, it totally didn't work. And there are actually a few studies that are coming out right now where scientists are having difficulty making CRISPR work in in humans and with human cells. So it's not, it's not quite so simple as what he did, but it was certainly a, it was certainly a stunt, <laughs> Oh yeah, and I mean he there was a 
there's an aspect of pulling the ladder up behind you where he did it, and then he instantly came out and said, "No one else should do that. That was that was dumb." But you know, he <laughs> he'd had his sort of fifteen minute bump. But uh, I get I get excited about that stuff more broadly just because it reminds me of the return to and for lack of a better word, the sort of gentleman scientist where you just have sort of the resources and the time and you just go ahead and like, and just do some shit with electricity. <laughs> it's, it kind of reminds you of a time when the whole world hadn't been explored yet and you could still make these super essential discoveries just at your house. I don't know. Do you think that's still possible, Rita? It's it's really actually quite interesting that you brought that up because I was talking with a few other scientists the other day after a panel that we had on uh, finding different careers after you get your PhD in whatever science you're in and you don't want to be a professor in academia. Like what other jobs are are there out there? And we were talking about how the nature of discovery is so different. Like one of my one of my colleagues, he was talking about how uh, his dad, who got also his PhD in the sciences, didn't ever take even multivariable calculus, because that was a thing that like the super genius math majors took. And now multivariable calculus is a really common subject for all the STEM majors. Mm -hmm. So that the the bar for for being, you know, considered a certain level of scientist is so different now, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like Isaac Newton, who's considered, you know, one of the great geniuses in history, discovered something that's actually really very simple to do an experiment for and prove. Like, it's really not that hard to show that force equals mass times acceleration. But, you know, at the time, nobody had really sort of understood this. So it was groundbreaking. But now what what is a groundbreaking discovery like like crispr for example is so much more more complicated technically it's a whole different beast to be able to discover things that are that are novel and really game changing mm-hmm. rob if if you were to have discovered something or rita what what unit what kind of thing would you want your last name to be a unit of <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to think about this. I've never, I've never been so bold as to think that a unit of measure would be named after me. But yeah, what would, what would a ray be? Can I mean, we... it already is a uh, an object of light. Yeah, like like ten rays um, of soda pop or something. I was pretty open ended. I apologize. Well, I used to. My friends and I used to joke because I am a I am a woman with rather curly hair. So my mm-hmm. friends used to joke about uh, someday measuring the spring constant of my hair. Oh. So just just how just how how uh, how bouncy is my hair? So maybe if there was there was a unit of Blake, it would be a unit mm-hmm. of uh, of of how bouncy your curly hair is, which is probably the mo- one of the most like stereotypically girly units of measure I could think of. So. Uh, my apologies, so cool, though, my yeah. apologies, but also no apologies to uh, yeah, all of the other yeah. lady scientists who might be listening to this. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not Dang. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm raising a uh, a young woman right now who is almost three, and um, I'm trying very hard not to overcorrect, but to give her access to all of it. It's like, yeah, let's you know, let's play in these sort of stereotypically feminine ways, but on top of the tiny workbench that we built or whatever. You know what I mean? There's And there's been a lot of talk recently in the sciences, uh, increasingly so about um, how, you know, different genders and like gender balance within the sciences and mm-hmm. what inclusivity means and um, even, even topics that really weren't even thought about before that are pretty heavy and deep, like sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, these types of, these types of subjects were, 
pretty much never discussed previously. So to have them even be in their nascent forms of conversation in big professional settings is uh, is is quite new. And it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see where that leads. And I'm curious how I guess the next generation of scientists are gonna are gonna tackle these uh, these issues that seem rather persistent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you are you That's finding cool. that you've got good mentorship opportunities for young women or people who would otherwise or otherwise just not, you know, white men coming up behind you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. I think I mean, I I mean, my my again, my PhD mentor, uh he he was he was he's a male, but uh my other mentor, my my art mentor, she was a female and mm-hmm. And it was really through her encouragement that I sort of entered into this path of being both a scientist and an artist. And it was through her that um, I met other colleagues, actually most of whom were female, that also um, ended up uh, helping me get a lot of the opportunities that I've gotten so far in my career. So, uh-huh. so yeah, I definitely have. And and even all the all of my male colleagues, at least the male colleagues who are who are my age, you know, in their 20s and 30s, have all have all been great. Like, I, I really haven't experienced that many issues personally, though I've definitely heard uh, some horror stories of people who have not been treated as well by by unfortunately yeah. by some men who are older. Uh-huh. But generally, yeah. the environment that that I'm in with my peers is rather supportive, which is really great. Taylor, would you call your hair curly? Me? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess does curly require that... Um... It looks like a spring, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's I, why I was curious about. It. So my my hair, sure. my hair, I can dread my hair without product, um, which I mean, you know, and also without washing it for a long, long time. And um, I've definitely had people ask me about my ethnicity, which really surprises right. me because uh-huh. I sort of feel like I'm just as white looking as they come. But you know, I've had people speak Hebrew to me on the street or. Uh-huh. Um, so, so there's definitely some, there's some flavor going on in there somewhere. I don't know, Rob, would you call my hair curly? Well, you, you <laughs> definitely have amazing hair. <laughs> it's funny because when I first met you, Taylor, you had always had very short hair. Right. Yeah. And I just sort of knew you as this person with you know, short hair. And then I saw a picture of you and your hair was maybe nine, nine to 12 inches long. Like shoulder it, length. Yeah. Yes, but it, none of it was touching your shoulder. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> because it all stuck straight up from your head. Yeah. In this really true. great, amazing sort of, um, I don't know, just like Yahoo serious kind of amazing way. That was so cool. I was like, oh my gosh, Taylor has just like, like there's a whole <laughs> aspect of Taylor I've never even seen before. Yeah, you should see my chin, which has never been exposed to. Yeah, Audrey saw it once and she was just like, never again. Hide, hide that thing. <laughs> Uh, you have had facial hair for as long as I've Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned Yahoo Serious because I think I think I've gotten the strongest reaction in public from strangers from African Americans, particularly older people. And I was talking to my colleague Fo Wilson about this, also African American, but sort of when when white people have hair that's reminiscent, you know, of a of a style that's popularized by a particular ethnic group, I think that uh-huh. the two main ways to read that are like cultural appropriation on one side or a sort of cultural celebration on the other side. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I think I got, I got a lot of positivity when I had what effectively was an Afro or at least as close as you'll see in a white guy. Um, right. But, uh, and then one guy, my pharmacist at Walgreens, he said, I looked like Gil Scott Heron. 
And so I went and told Foe, oh, I'm so proud of myself. She said, I, or he said, I look like Gil Scott. And she was like, dude, that guy's a heroin addict. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't want to be yeah, too proud yeah, of that. But um, yeah. man, he did some good albums. But it's creative stuff. genius, so. Yeah, it's good with the bad. I was just listening to that the other day. I I can never <laughs> save my my favorites till the end. So everyone go listen to um, the album. What is it from eighty two? The revolution will not be televised. Is the first track. Oh yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I think right. we need to to share some hair pics after recording this podcast. Oh for sure. Oh. Well, I see a tiny picture of you, Read on Flickr. You look like you've got some. Yeah, you were you were referring to how many Rita's your hair has, or how many how many Blakes. <laughs> How, How many, many Blakes? Blakes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll rate one another by Blakes at the, uh, at the podcast <laughs> end. Should we look at um? Let's look at our, our stuff. We should. Yes. So I guess I'm first. Now huh? you guys want to download that uh, zip file and tell me what you see. So the first image I see is bullet. I would assume by the name bullet that it would have something to do with an actual bullet. Science. But it's, but it, <laughs> I, I need a scale bar. I don't know how big this object actually is. It's, it's rather interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, again, I would guess that it, it's maybe like an old bullet shell or something similar. Cause it looks like something, um, that was, that was a casing with some type of material inside, um, that seems, somewhat like a compacted powder in nature. And then the outside uh, looks like metal that has been uh, worn with age Um, with the exception of uh, the sort of front face of this, uh, of the opening of the, of the casing where it's kind of gotten the look of uh, freshly sheared metal. So so that's so, so yeah, I'm guessing it has to do with the bullet again, considering the name, but if I hadn't seen the name of the image, I don't know that I would have necessarily uh, picked up on that specifically. That's it, Rob. Yeah. Scientists every yeah. time. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like very concise, clear descriptions uh-huh. of what is on the screen. I like. It. I'm used. Wow. To, I'm used to putting uh, descriptors for figures, so I guess that's <laughs> that's yeah. where that instinct wow. is. You, my friend, have Maybe. to read Annihilation. By the way, <laughs> second one is a is an animated GIF. It looks like I might have loaded it called Case Animation, and it is looks to be. A wooden case, and I'm going to guess that it's walnut because uh-huh. Taylor and I both have been a fan of walnut lately, and this has a walnut, walnutty looking tail. The telltale signs of walnutness are in this are in this case. Um, I'm not sure how how big it how big it is. So the animated gift gift shows is an animation of sort of the front uh, hat, hasp and then the back two hinges, and it's um it's sort of one of these cases. It's it's a box. So if, let's say it's six inches by six inches, then it's maybe two inches tall. Uh, and there's two brass hinges on the back and a cool little looking hasp on the front that I'm quite curious about how it works. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm seeing in the second image. So then the third image, uh, which is, is this uh, CFSO2? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, oops, here we go. Uh, so I'm assuming this is the box from the previous image. Because yes. uh, it looks to be about the same size and the same type of clasp in the front. So now in this image, uh, the box is opened. And inside the box, there is um, some green velvet lining on the inside. Yeah. And then what looks to be a recipe card uh, that's stuck on the, the top part of the box uh, when you see the opening. 
says single meal leaf recipe. Uh, one one L maybe Department of Corrections. Uh, uh, Illinois. Oh, oh Illinois Department oh, of good Corrections. Ah. So uh, yeah, looks like a a recipe. And then uh, below that, on the other part of the box, is uh, forks that seem to be in. Uh, various states of being melted there's uh five forks the one on the left seems to be the the most resembling a normal one and the one on the right the far right is the one that looks to be the most uh the most melted or maybe has some type of extra metal added onto it uh maybe from like a soldering yeah. iron yeah right yeah like a t2 <laughs> the terminator uh, yeah the t-1000 yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah don't, don't come around here trying to get away with just saying t2 buddy <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, mom what's wrong with wolfie <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, wow taylor amazing recall on terminator 2 um that movie still gives me like freaky dreams to this day yeah. that scene where he's coming down the hallway when the t-1000's coming down the hallway and the lights no. are kind of strobing oh my god the fourth image is this the same uh box and so my dimensions i said six inches and it's probably more like 10 maybe 10 by 10 something like that if if the forks are of like average fork length um mm -hmm. yeah and to reader's point there's five forks in there and the first fork has some sort of specks of kind of metallic looking growth on them. And then it becomes progressively more um, sort of convoluted. Like the fork shape becomes more uh, uh, abstracted and kind of blobby by the time it gets to the fifth fork. So then uh, the next image, uh, CFS 10. So this is a close-up shot of the, uh -huh. of the recipe card, which looks to be made of uh, metal. So the same metal that the oh. the hinges are made of. Yeah. It looks, so it looks like it could be, um, well, it probably isn't the same size as the hinge because the hinges were really small and that, that card was much bigger, but it looks to be of the same material. So now that I could see better, it says a single meal loaf recipe, Illinois Department of Corrections. Uh, sh should I read the whole recipe? It sounds delicious. Yeah, let's read it. <laughs> <laughs> Two ounces ground beef, uh, browned and drained. Four ounces of canned chopped spinach. Four ounces of canned diced carrots. Four ounces of vegetarian beans. You know, as opposed to those meaty beans. Um, <laughs> I guess you can make beans with meat in the recipe, but uh, it's such a it's such a funny such a funny thing to read. Uh, four ounces of applesauce. One ounce of tomato paste. Half a cup of potato flakes, one cup of breadcrumbs, two ounces of dry milk powder, one teaspoon of garlic powder or flakes. And then for the directions, which are on the right-hand side, it says each loaf should bake at 300 degrees Fahrenheit in a conventional slash steam oven for approximately 40 minutes or until the loaf reaches 155 degrees internal temperature. Oh. Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, I haven't maybe. had dinner tonight, so uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe now I've got a new recipe to try. All right. So I'm going to... That's... Yeah. Hmm. Applesauce, ground beef, beans, carrots, spinach. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting melange of uh, yes. <laughs> ingredients. Cool. So, yeah, this... Um, 
this one, I don't know if you'll consider it cheating or not, but this is a project that's been <laughs> underway for a really long time. Uh, in the first version, I made these 3D printed plastic forks. And then I've been trying for a long time to get the grant funds and all this different stuff to move up to sterling silver. Ah. And uh, so I got them done. It just so happened that I was getting them done as this particular challenge came up. And because I had moved them from a prototype stage to a much larger, you know, precious metals and this fancy box and everything, I, I thought that that was my angle on the challenge. Uh, just to give you some background that you can't really pull out of the images, the bullet came from when I was cutting down this walnut and I just cut right across the bullet. So it had been shot into the walnut, you know, who knows, like 50 years ago or something. And then the boards got milled down. It just sat in there and actually leapt up out of the wood and then pinged off my cheek while I was, uh, uh, cutting the stuff down. So I, I really liked that, uh, weird thing where the bullet, you know, hit the tree and stopped its trajectory for 50 years or something, then continued on. Uh, so that's just sort of a neither here nor there. But because the piece is about the corrections uh, system, at least in part, I thought that was apropos. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so it's it's really about uh, these sort of two competing ideas I was interested in with the American prison system, where you actually can be punished by being served really disgusting food. It's called controlled feeding <laughs> status. Um, and then TAMS, which is shut down pretty recently in yes. southern Illinois, was one of the places that was infamous for this. Some inmates got together and tried to sue the government, saying it was cruel and unusual punishment to be forced to eat this stuff. And so when I show this work, uh, it um, I try to always bake a accurate Nutri-Loaf, which uh, the product's called Nutri-Loaf, and it comes from uh, the recipe that was released in the court case when the inmates were saying it was cruel and unusual. Mm. Uh, so the government said, you know, it's technically nutritious and they're not under any responsibility to make the food appetizing or enjoyable. Um, so the inmates lost, but, you know, but then we got to see, we got evidence of how the, the food operates. So I've made a big tin of this stuff and then presented it last week at Columbia College in Chicago. I gave a little artist talk about it. So there's like a 15-minute recorded talk for anyone who's interested to see more on my uh, on my website. It's so interesting that like some of the recipe, some of the ingredients in this recipe are not cheap ingredients necessarily. I mean, I guess it oh, yeah. depends on the on the quality of the ingredient. But things, I mean, things like beef. Um, breadcrumbs some of these ingredients can be i get pretty expensive i would think i mean if you're if you're going for feeding inmates i would think that you wouldn't want to especially if you're not trying to feed them anything that's appetizing i i'm i wouldn't imagine that you'd want to spend a lot of money but it's it's a lot of ingredients to to make someone miserable yeah it's i mean <laughs> when you make it i mean in, in the right context it's not really that big a deal so it tastes I don't know if you guys ate that Frito Lay bean dip in the '90s, like I did, in oh, great yeah. quantities. But that, um, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Rob gets very serious. Yeah, it's a, it, I mean, it just tastes, you know, bland and kind of, it's a little sort of the mouthfeel is pretty, uh, pretty neutral, and so you know, it it just m makes you think about when calories are in super short supply, people would react a lot differently to something like this. And, and sure enough, I was trying to get people to eat it 
and then one of my students, uh, Michael Pantelios in Chicago, he tried it and he said, you know, it's not that big a deal, and I'll just I'll just take it home and eat it. So so I made like a like a full scale lasagna pan of this stuff, <laughs> and I think he got through like half the pan before he just said, oh, I, you know, he came and he said, I I just don't think I can do anymore. <laughs> I, I would try, but I'd really have to, you know, clear my schedule out and just really focus on it. And then a day or two later, he said, "Oh well, I, I started up again." And then he had brought in a sandwich that he made, that he made out of it. So yeah, there was just something really interesting about, like, you know, a college student might see that and just think, "Oh, you know, free calories, and I don't have to cook for a couple nights." And an inmate whose only joy, you know, maybe eating, could see it as literal torture and. um yeah, so, so all that stuff's kind of swirling around in there. And I don't necessarily have an answer about all of that. And I'm trying not to be too flip, but there's definitely something super absurd about the, uh, you know, kind of food culture and the implements that are related to it. So that was what I was hoping to go for. How did you get the recipe? Was it from, like, a Tam's? Was it from Tam's, or is it... It's just that the court stuff. case is available online, so you can see the result, uh, the result of the whole thing. So it's something like... Let me see if I can find... There was a really great great quote that I dug up for this. Um, so the inmates tried to say it was cruel and unusual, you know, so that it was violating one of their constitutional rights. But then there was this other one. Uh, however, the court found that such deprivation must be so serious as to deny the minimal civilized measure of life's necessities, which is such a like great, weird, abstract uh-huh. measure and that the Eighth Amendment requires only that prisoners receive food adequate to maintain health that need not be tasty or aesthetically pleasing. It's a pretty fascinating read because it's so it's so dry to look at, but then if you dig in there, there are some really huge questions being asked about what, you know, <laughs> like like what the human animal needs beyond just being, you know, like metabolically sustained. And they use the word civilized, which yes. is... Definitely yeah. a loaded term and might mean For sure. different things depending on how you want to uh, put it in context. Totally. So I kind of cheated. This is definitely much larger of the scope than anything, you know, we can get done in two weeks. Uh, but I hope to I hope to slip it in around the corner with our 10 times as big. <laughs> yeah. It's also, I mean, it's a, it is a, a project that is, has been a, a 10 times bigger kind of project for you, right? Like... Sure. As far as like the length of time that it took and the sort of material cost and like that kind of thing. I, th- too, right? I think it's been, I think I've been working on it for at least four years. That's awesome. I've always had this problem of having an idea and then knowing it to be served correctly, it was going to require a certain amount of money invested. And it's just been really hard for me to convince myself that, you know, like making artwork is worth more than a certain amount of money. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So some of these ideas like this one, I knew there was just, there's something about sterling silver in this context that you just really couldn't substitute. And even if it was, uh-huh. it looked correct, like if it was chromed plastic or something, I feel like it just wouldn't have been there. So I had to really hold off till I could get it, you know, financially supported and all that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the feedback. Guys. Cool you got it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Shout out to um, Lori Jo Reynolds too, who, uh, yep. she was an artist in yeah Chicago who like worked for years to get Tam shut down and actually succeeded. Do do you think that was is because of her activism specifically? I mean, I know. She, I mean, it was like seven years of her life dedicated to that Tangier Ten project. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know exactly the impact, but certainly, like, she moved the needle. You know, mm-hmm. like, which is 
I mean, I, think I, 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 that was definitely when I was, I was, I wasn't in Chicago when that, when it was closed, but I was around when she was, you know, doing a ton of that work. And I was just like, man, like, it's easy to sort of bag on the, like, inefficiency or inefficacy of art, but she just didn't give a crap and just went for it. And I was like, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Rita, let's check out your yeah. stuff. So one of the first things I'm trying to figure out is, is if this was done by hand. It feels like it was. Feels like it. Yeah. I can't decide. <laughs> they... Should I answer that or should oh, I no, let no, you guys no. ruminate? Oh, don't tell yeah. us yet. Oh, we, got, the... we got some ruminating left. So, so there's, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine um, uh, uh, drawn, I'd say. I'll use the word drawn. Objects on... A sheet of paper. It seems like it feels like a sheet of paper, roughly in the. I don't know what the dimensions are, but it's roughly like an eight and a half by eleven sort of dimensionality. You know, where it's eight or so inches wide feeling and eleven or so inches high feeling. The first three objects, huh? Interestingly, the first one on the far left is very abstracted, and it's actually very curly Q, and it's and it's look and it sort of has like a graphite pencil um type of line it's a, an even line it's a deep gray and it has um it looks like i've seen dna sort of made before and it and it or sort of extracted before and it has that kind of spaghetti y kind of vibe yeah uh curling back uh, or on like itself. a sp- yeah like a spaghetti squash kind of um tightly curled intertwined uh almost frizzy kind of feel but the line weight is heavier than maybe frizzy and it it looks like maybe like a there's a rough shape of like a fly or like a goat head i know that's like two things that are totally different but that's what (laughs) i'm seeing of the image um and then there's another there's two more objects at the top of the page they're both more spherical uh, seeming and the first one the one at the top has almost like a um, kind of little satellite sputnik kind of uh, pegs coming out of it or something that almost looks like a underwater landmine kind of feel where it's almost spiky and then the one on the right has almost like a translucent look uh, but is also very spherical and it sort of looks like it's kind of held together at the cell walls, and there's like a little nucleus inside each of one. Like each a, like of a the little cells ball. that make up the ball. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if I would describe all the other ones in detail. I mean, the image is dominated by the big sort of spherical yeah. afro at the center, and then there's all the pieces arranged, and they're arranged in a really aesthetic, aestheticized manner. It's reminding yeah. me of those. Uh, Rob, did you ever see those arranged diatoms? Uh, these uh, slides, I put I put a link up on the uh, Slack channel, but it used to be sort of a thing near, you know, back in the initial discovery of the microscope where you could actually, like, get a yes. tiny, tiny little implement in there and make sort of kaleidoscope forms and whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, there definitely is a microscopic feel to these, and I'm not exactly sure how to articulate. Rita might have a better sense of how to say that, but it definitely feels like things that are, are look, something that is very tiny that... Mm-hmm. Um, looks 
to be in. Okay. I th- I'm going to guess that these are done by hand, uh, maybe in graphite or something, but the precision, I mean, the one you were describing, Rob, that yeah. has that sort of soccer ball look, it's really um, giving a sense of depth. And so yes. I feel like there has to be some kind of assistance here, whether it's tracing or indeed some kind of computer form. But if you if you scroll in on the one in the lower right that has these these six kind of nodes on it coming out from the edges, there's some pretty remarkable repetition, and there's enough variance to show you that it's not perfect, perfect. But um, as right. you get farther away from it, you know, they they read pretty pretty on the money. So it's a, it's a really intriguing image. I mean, I think it's halfway between yeah. something that's you know you're supposed to take formal enjoyment looking at, but I'm assuming it all it has actual information in it. You know, that's coming from real. Um, microscopic structures. Rita, how'd we do? Uh, yeah, you guys did pretty well, actually. I think you guys picked up on a lot of the things I was trying to uh, trying to convey, both uh, informationally and aesthetically. So, mm-hmm. so nicely done. <laughs> Uh, I guess we could, uh, you didn't uh, notice that they were curly, and we were referring before to curly hair. So, yes. uh, okay. so we could calculate the the Blake units for uh, yes. <laughs> the various <laughs> various curly cues of the structures. Um, the high Blake unit number in some of these. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but sh- shall I go ahead and uh, describe what I yeah, made? Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so when I uh, got the theme uh, ten times bigger. Uh, it sort of coincided with a lot of my thoughts lately on on microscopes, and uh, especially and interestingly that you guys mentioned the sort of like early days of sort of gentleman science, the the history and progression of the microscope from something that was uh, sort of a leisurely and you know uh, a scholarly activity of those who had wealth and access. Uh, and then towards something that was very technical and, and to a very different audience. So in the early days of the microscope, you had these uh, these sort of old school and again, I guess, kind of gentlemanly scholars like um, like Ernst Haeckel and Robert Hooke, who were early users of, of microscopes that would uh, do these really beautiful images of objects that they saw in the microscopic world that people in the regular world uh, didn't have access to. I mean, certainly, certainly not, you know, having microscopes in their own homes and without the sort of easy spread of quick information like we have right now with the internet. So, so these, these illustrations that they made were the first look into a world that was very alien and very foreign. So, so they were really sort of revolutionary at the time. And so this, this microscope, this object that enabled uh, images to be blown up and made bigger, uh, really revealed this very new, uh, new world. And so recently, uh, for the 2017 Nobel Prizes, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded for a technique called cryo-electron microscopy, which is a type of microscopy where you take things that are really, really small, uh, things on the nanoscale, so things on the scale of billionths of a meter, so things like viruses, really large molecules, uh, protein structures, and before, it would be really impossible to image these things, really, really difficult. Um, obviously, we can't see them with our naked eye because they're way too small. And even a light microscope uh, doesn't really get you the kind of resolution that you would need to see these very, very small structures. So 
previously, one way of doing it is something called X-ray crystallography, where you would try to take these protein structures and crystallize them and then shoot X-rays at them and see the ways that this crystalline or crystallized protein um, uh, diffracts or, uh, or bends or moves uh, the, the X-rays. And by seeing those patterns of diffraction, you could then uh, figure out what the structure of the proteins were. But it's a very laborious, very technically challenging process, and it doesn't work for a lot of protein structures. So this Nobel Prize-winning technique, the cryoelectron microscopy, uh, in this technique instead, you basically just uh, kind of flash freeze these biomolecules in vitreous ice, so ice that's glassy, so it doesn't have a crystal structure. And then when you shoot this beam of electrons at it, um, the electrons go through the glassy ice because the the ice doesn't bend the electrons. And then the electrons can interact with your protein samples. And then uh, based off of the pattern that you get from the electrons, then you can uh, you can determine the image of these structures. And that's kind of that's kind of the basic technique for how it works. And not only can you resolve. Uh, much more complicated structures much more uh, easily because you don't have to try and make uh, crystal structures out of proteins, which is really, really hard, Um, but you could do it a lot more quickly. So the big structure in the center, for example, is actually the structure of the Zika virus, which they Mm. were able to resolve, (laughs) I think, in a few, I want to say a few months, maybe three months, which is an incredibly quick turnaround for such a complicated, uh, such a complicated structure. And most of the structures that are in the drawing are, um, are viral actually. So, um, the, the small, uh, the small two structures to the left and the right of the Zika virus are, um, uh, complexes in, uh, hepatitis E, uh, the, the virus that's on the top, right. The one that looks kind of like, uh, a soccer ball type of structure that's the head of the t4 virus which is one of those uh it's a virus that has one of those common structures that uh, that look like uh sort of a weird like oblong spider or like an oblong octopus that has a big head and a bunch of feet um (laughs) and then um the one that has all the little probes coming out of it the one at the top center is uh the human adenovirus which is a type of virus that causes like respiratory infections, um, organ diseases, that kind of thing. So most of these structures are uh, viral structures, and all of them are structures that have been resolved with this uh, with this cryo-electron microscopy technique. And so I wanted to take, do the same, try to attempt to do at least the same thing that uh, Robert Hooke and Ernst Haeckel did with their images of things with light microscopes, which is to take something that people are unaware of and try to convey these objects in a way that's kind of mysterious and aesthetically pleasing at the same time to give that sort of, uh, that sort of same mystery and kind of, uh, pay tribute to the way that Haeckel especially, um, conveyed these, uh, these images of these mysterious objects at very, very small scales. That's really cool. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. And Haeckel had, he had a kind of stylized approach, right? Like, as I think of it, like that, like if you saw like a, uh, and something he drew, you kind of could tell he drew it. You know, like he, his mm-hmm. hand was very present. Yeah. I mean, so many of those things I still haven't ever seen. So I don't really know what they look like. But they just look, they seemed very stylized, but also um, totally, you know, yeah, like re- real things at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think 
in at least a few of his structures, he probably took uh, some form of artistic license in uh, uh-huh. in how they were depicted. But I think that I think that still, I mean, he he conveyed things in a way that was uh, so visually striking that I think we can forgive a little yeah. bit of the artistic yes. license because the product totally. was so beautiful. And also, yeah. I just loved his. Uh, the way that he laid everything out in this sort of very dense, but still very thoughtful and beautiful sort of way. So I also kind of wanted to lay out all of these structures in a, in a kind of a dense way. And I wanted to try to do even more structures, but uh, with the two week time period, this is a, this is about as much as I was able to, to sketch out because they're, they're such complicated structures. I also want to point out for anyone following along at home that it's H-A-E-C-K-E-L, not Hegel like Chuck Hegel, because that's the only right. result you'll get when you Google it. <laughs> well, and it was yeah. it was an interesting exercise for me because I I very specifically have stayed away from doing any sort of drawing with my art for a long time because when I was so I emotional journey time. So when I was in, <laughs> here we go, getting real into my deep seated fears about art. Um, <laughs> when I was, when I was a kid, like when I was in kindergarten, I distinctly remember my teacher chastising me for not coloring, right? Because I would, when I was coloring in different shapes, I would, you know, start coloring in one direction and then I get kind of tired of that and start coloring in a different direction. And so I guess because I wasn't making sort of one consistent, one consistent uh, drawing line with my with my coloring that I wasn't coloring right. So I think oh. that kind of scarred me early on into into or scared me away from thinking that I could actually do any sort of hand drawing of anything. So Ooh. to actually to actually tackle something by hand was uh, was was an interesting emotional challenge for me, especially because I was trying to be referential to somebody. Uh, like Haeckel, whose work is so, so beautiful and so incredibly well done that, that it was definitely, uh, I guess again, much like my, my uh, occasional challenge in feeling like I have any validity in saying that I am an artist. It was sort of that similar, that similar fear of, of, you know, am I good enough to make any of these types of drawings? But it ended up being really a satisfying experience. And it really also made me appreciate again, just how complex these structures are. Cause when you have to draw every single curl and every single squiggle in the right yes. direction by hand, it is so time consuming and so challenging. So it really made me appreciate just how much information, uh, scientists have worked to obtain to get these images because it's it's quite a lot oh so in the case of the zika all of those squiggles are actually specific squiggles mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> okay I, I had no it idea ain't, about it that. ain't just it ain't just curly hair that goes here there and everywhere yeah there there, <laughs> there's, there are specific protein complexes <laughs> amazing okay yeah, yeah wow. that that gave you a totally different read of the whole thing <laughs> all right rob you ready to you ready to lay it on the line I'm ready, yeah. First off, it looks like Rob is going the uh, the fabric route again, uh-huh. <laughs> which I'm I'm digging. Rita, what do you got? I think the second image is anyway just a continuation of the first image. So the first image was a was a bolt of fabric. So the second image looks to be that fabric laid out onto uh, a mat table or a cutting table with um, 
with a blade and a what looks like a ruler. So yep. looks like it is preparations for for cutting the fabric. And the fabric, by the way, has uh, the sort of uh, black and white chevron type of pattern to it, or or a zigzag pattern. It's like Charlie yep. Brown meets the Seventh Seal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really like that description. The uh, so in the third image, uh, we're looking at some paint examples, specifically Bear Brand. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> helium igloo blue and another one so the next image uh looks like uh maybe a surface of uh planks of wood or pieces of wood then the the next image uh looks to be two uh two corner pieces of what might be uh shelf shelf mm-hmm. hangings mm-hmm. um and they look to be traced onto wood and then there's some kind of uh liquid being applied to the inside of those tracings that's uh clear so maybe some type of uh some type of a glue um oh and there's a there looks to be a, a jar or a container of something that says glue behind it so i i do believe yeah it's some type of a some type of a glue or adhesive what do you think about the way that the shelf brackets look like they're being installed really off-center? That that surprises me, and I'm curious to figure out why that is. Mm-hmm. We'll keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mystery continues. Ooh, and then we've got... See, this is a tool I don't have yet that I really want. One of those uh, right-angle drivers for tight spaces. Uh, so it looks like yeah. it's getting screwed in somewhere yep. where the um the piece of wood is now in a shelf orientation relative to the wall. The next image uh looks to be uh some type of a some type of a box structure or or, or a recessed uh, a recessed box structure. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, where um there's some type of uh aluminum or tin foil around the very outside and then uh, a sort of black frame and then on the inside there, the inside of the box, all of the sides of the box have that uh, that same zigzag fabric that we saw in the first couple of images with what looks to be um, at the sort of bottom center of the box, uh, some type of a hole that leads somewhere. Will this be like a puppet stage or something? I'm trying to figure out. Oh, maybe. Where we could be going. Should we hit the video? You want to? Sure. I think so. I think you should definitely have a live if your if your handle is Og. I think you should definitely have a live performance at some point, and you should call it Og Mented Reality. Boom! Oh. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so uh, I'm seeing, and Rita probably wouldn't be aware of this, but this is uh, this was the thing you were working on last week, correct, Rob? With the um, or that you had started last week. The impetus for ten times. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's uh, you made a magnet board with the uh, taking care of business lightning bolt. <laughs> Rob is very carefully uh, placing his magnetic letters on this board. <laughs> <laughs> Rita, I don't know if we're in the same place or not. <laughs> are we? Are you now at the uh, the 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 head in the box? Yeah. Oh, and then uh, now there's a uh, something else. Yeah, so um, so the head and the the uh, thing that we saw in the photographs was sort of a stage set 
for Rub to do some kind of like Jacob's Ladder <laughs> freak show <laughs> moment in his how-to video. So I'm really curious to see how this is going to play back into it. You're giving me some like T-1000 flashbacks uh-huh. with that staccato <laughs> movement. So right now it's just really straightforward, descriptive visuals and audio, and I just keep waiting for something really weird to happen. (laughs) Have have you guys ever seen the YouTube channel How to Basic? No. It's kind of reminding me of that a little bit, where I think it's the one I'm thinking of where this guy will, it starts out like he's making a coffee, but then he just starts dumping paint all over his kitchen and like leaping around and kicking things out of the cabinets, and it's, it's hard to describe. But it, it has that same kind of starts off really blasé and then gets super weird. A lot of Rob and Fast Mo exhibiting good safety, good safety <laughs> technique. Although I don't know, dude, one strap dust mask. Come on, don't you don't you work I for don't NASA? Know. Can't you afford the two strap? <laughs> <laughs> it's a two strap. Oh, what? I think. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. yeah. There's one lower down. Okay. You got you're off the hook this time, Ray. <laughs> I have a respirator, you know, like the fancier respirator, but mm-hmm. it's so onerous to wear. Yes, I know that's a, a dumb thing to say, but like he immediately just starts super sweating mm-hmm. when those in those respirators. It improves. That's the, the same seal. with uh, that's the same with research uh, personal protective right. equipment too. Like it's definitely yep. super yeah. important and necessary. So you know we all do it. But it's yeah. so it's so uncomfortable. Like gloves always make my hands really sweaty, and goggles yeah. are are really uncomfortable on you know the bridge of your nose, and they constantly slip, so you keep having to push them back up. And lab coats, you know, have like those long sleeves that like feel like they're getting in the way all the time. So yep. yeah. it definitely you know keeps you safe, but it also really is such an encumbrance. So I'm I'm cheating a little bit. And peeking ahead, and as sure, yeah. as far as I can tell, Rob's um, like Max Headroom um, severed head in a box thing only only happens once for ten seconds, and I'm just completely uh, <laughs> cast adrift by it. I'm trying to figure <laughs> trying to figure it out. Rita, do you have any any ideas? I yeah, I I have to maybe go back and take a take a second view at it because it does seem like (laughs) the least connected thing to anything well i guess it was the most connected to the original images and then the least connected to the video Mm -hmm. Uh let's see so rob did a version of this video the last time and i'm i'm assuming that he came back and improved upon the video uh, maybe with different angles and lighting and so forth, but then yes, the most and with and with, with other things that the origin that the images you saw reflect. The images it may be hard because reflect. if you haven't seen the original in a while, I have that like thing where I've edited the video, so I've looked at it a thousand times. But yeah, some of the original issues with the video were that the the board itself was just sort of leaning up against this cart of mine it wasn't actually mounted to the wall so i made a, a cleat for the for the cork, cork cork board itself nice the other one was the the wall was the same color as the metal oh yeah so i i decided to paint the wall like that light baby blue color in order to 
um, set the piece off. Well, that's from, commitment, man. <laughs> yeah, from its well, because the challenge was ten times bigger, yeah. and I was like, how do I, how do I like, I want to like up my game. That's happened to me a number of times on the podcast where I'm like, oh, I did a thing, but like if I did it again, I would really want to change a few things, uh-huh. you know. And so I wanted to sort of tackle this idea of like both um, like formally bigger and also conceptually bigger, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I wanted to take some of the things that were definitely like falling down about the original look of the piece mm-hmm. and fix those. Um, uh, if you look at the old video too, there's like, I cleaned up the edges on the, on the corkboard itself and just did some things like that to sort of make it a tighter, better and more interesting looking experience. And then, yes, so, and then I injected in the very first uh, advertisement into the piece, (laughs) (laughs) uh, which is going to unfold. Uh, Oh, you tease. uh, Yes. I don't know. Does, do do either of you, did either of you um, ever enter the world of skateboarding or anything like that as a... Uh, I tried skateboarding once with my husband. I was doing real great until I was getting a little too excited and uh, turned turned a corner a little too tightly and fell and uh, slightly broke my arm. And that oh. was that was both the beginning and the ending of my skating career. Yikes! <laughs> All in one day. Yeah, I, uh, so, I rollerbladed in college. Does that count? Oh yeah, yeah, sure, that counts. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I ask is there was this. There was this skater named Rob Roskop. Mm-hmm. He was on the Santa Cruz team. And he had a graphic that was this like a sort of iconic, amazing graphic of like this. It's like a target. And the target, there's like an arm busting out of the target. Like from, and if you imagine the target, like sort of like a Kool-Aid man, sort of brick wall, you know. And the arm is like busting through. So you just sort of see this arm poking through the, the target itself. Mm-hmm. And that was like his iconic image for a couple of years. And you're just like, everyone sort of knew that skateboard because the graphic was so cool. But what he, what, what they did with it was they released a series of skateboards after that, that that gradually revealed more of the image over time. Mm -hmm. And it was this really effective and interesting thing that was done to skateboard graphics. that wasn't really done anywhere else where you were like, Ooh, the Rob Roscop three is out. And like the three had, you wanted to see it because you wanted to see what the reveal was. Yeah, there's actually, there's, it's, uh, I just posted a link to the progression of the Roscap boards. It's also interesting how it kind of obliterates the name over time, which, yeah, yeah, they really went full tilt with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm about to catch the wrath of like how to people on YouTube for injecting a completely, uh, random thing in the middle of my video with no explanations. (laughs) I'm excited to see the comments come. Well, back. I I want more, man. I mean, you know, if if you just give that out once, I spent the entire time kind of like ah, uh? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. and and maybe that's exactly. exactly the the you know what you were looking for. And so, of course, following our assessment of the former challenge, Rita, what is the next challenge? Well, I was. Uh... I guess thinking again, sort of prior to prior to recording today, I was thinking about the the process of of art and the process of science and the process of engineering and the process of design. 
And I was thinking about, I guess, specifically the process of science where the the idealized form of science is to try to constantly try to prove yourself wrong. That if you really want to be sure that that your theory or your idea or your experimental setup is a good one and a correct one that you need to find every single way possible of proving yourself wrong. So I would be very interested to see how you two and your guests for next week, uh, whoever they may be, um, would tackle this same idea of uh, proving yourself wrong. So, So that's the theme. Awesome. I like it. That, yeah, that's great. I just have to figure out which wrongness to go with. I know there's plenty, <laughs> yes, I know. plenty to draw upon. That was great. We, um, I, if I remember right, we have a, an excellent guest for this challenge. Ah. So, yeah. All right. All right. Play us um, out, keyboard kit. Yeah, cool. Uh, we have a little bit of what we're into. And Rita, I think you have some uh, cool things that you wanted to share with our listeners? Yeah. Um, a lot of the things that I, I put into this, what we're listening to, uh, really has mostly to do with the things that inspired me for the challenge. So cool. there's a really, there's a really great, uh, reading by an author named J.A. Bennett, uh, who wrote a book, The Social History of the Microscope, that goes into this history of the microscope changing from something sort of more kind of social and leisurely academic into something that's very sort of technical. Um, and also, uh, Robert Hooke's book, Micrographia, uh, or the subtitled, uh, some physiological descriptions of minute bodies made by magnifying glasses with observations <laughs> and inquiries thereupon, <laughs> thereupon, <laughs> thereupon, Whoever said a nice, this was a, nice conc- a nice, concise, yeah. <laughs> a nice, concise title. Um, and also another thing that really, uh, not I didn't actively inspire my project, but I think sort of subconsciously inspired my project is some work by a friend of mine, uh, Christina Agapakis, who is also a scientist who does a lot of really great art. Um, and oh, she cool. had a piece called um, IGE where she draws um, protein structures that were uh, done in a uh, in uh, X-ray crystallography that specifically deals with uh, things that she's allergic to. So that's a that's a pretty fun <laughs> wow. a pretty fun piece that she's done. So so those are the those are the things that I'm into. That sounds awesome. That one's hitting close to home because I'm a I'm a person with many allergies. Oh, yeah, oh I no. didn't know that. Yeah, I always have some, like the seasonal allergy, you know, like just pollen mm-hmm. and dust and all that crap. Yeah, I can tell it's spring in Chicago, even though it snowed today because my nose was running all day. Uh-huh. <laughs> Taylor, do you have anything for the uh, for the queue? Uh, I think I I always wind up talking about it during the show. I've been reading um, yeah. uh, Annihilation, like I was saying, which I've been kind of battling with because it doesn't really pick up until about halfway through. Uh, I've also been really into, and this is just like a kind of popular one, but I think it's either the New Yorker or the New York Times puts out a podcast called The Daily. Do you guys listen to this one? No. Uh, I've just been so into it. So they, they really make it, I think it's at least every weekday. I don't I don't know about the weekends, but it's like 20 minutes and it's about a topic from yesterday. And so it's like oh. working on this podcast just makes me realize what a Herculean task that is, but it's always so up to date <laughs> that you can pretty much, it's one of the only ones I listen to where I just put it on if there's one available and never look at the description. Cause I know it's, you know, about something that just happened. So that one I've been really into. Nice. Oh, that's cool. 
Yeah. Oh, and, and uh, the other thing I'll throw in is um, the Forks piece is going into uh, a top-secret show in Omaha that I can't talk about yet, but it, I think it's <laughs> it's going to be opening around June 1st, so I'll, I'll have more information on that as it, uh, as it becomes available. Awesome. Cool. Mm-hmm. I have three ones, three different ones. Uh, one is just a, a thing. You know, do y'all know this sort of blog slash website called This is Colossal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a cool site. You know, it's, it's always got something interesting. And this piece, I think, was shared by my friend Deb Chatra on Twitter or something, and I heard about it. And it's this German scene. I'm going to read the description because it's much more, it's much better than anything I could sort of just read, think about saying off the top of my head. But uh, it's a German seamstress, Agnes Richter, who was a patient at a psychiatric clinic in the 1890s. And while in the asylum, she would just continue to embroider her straight jacket over and over with words and phrases and stuff on top of the jacket. Uh. And so if you see the image, it's just amazing. And it's just layers and layers and layers of language and writing one on top of the other across the jacket over and over. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, like you can't even decipher some of it because it's just, you know, four words, <laughs> six, eight words stacked on top of one another and intersecting and stuff. Um, but they have deciphered some of it. And it's like some of the phrases that they shared on the, on the, on the post was like, was I am not big. I wish to read and I plunge headlong into disaster. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's just like, wow. it's one of those objects that you look at and it's just infinitely fascinating to just stare at and think about. So I want to share that. And also it's very depressing, <laughs> but uh, uh, the next one is a quote uh, by a Chicago jazz musician, Sun Ra. Um, and I just heard about the quote and I just thought it, it really sort of hit me. Uh, in an interesting way. And his quote is, if you are not mad at the world, you don't have what it takes, which I thought (laughs) for (laughs) someone like Sun Ra, who, who is a sort of, there's a layer of anger to his work, but it's a very celebratory and sort of um, kind of Afro futurists fantasy uh, aspect to it is so strong. It's really interesting to sort of hear that anger come out in in various ways and that you know it, it sort of reframe it doesn't reframe his work but it frames his work differently and that you know there's a component of escape and stuff in afrofuturism that i think it's easy to maybe forget about because it is so like funky and wild so <laughs> i thought that was cool and that made me that sort of was useful for me thinking about like if i'm going to make these youtube videos that are sort of trying to uh, articulate what I want to say through this sort of weird internet medium. How do I do that? You know, mm-hmm. So, and then the third one is a is a is a thing a person could buy, and it's but I I really dig it, and I was really hesitant about this, but I I used to use wired headphones in the shop, and <clears throat> finally I I did the thing that I was always worried about doing one for my safety and one because I will break the headphones and I did break them, which is I caught my headphone cable on the, on the table slot sled yes. <laughs> and yeah. Pulled and your like face right down the head- in there. <laughs> it just, it could have, it could have. And I was just like, screw this man. I gotta like, I got I got, I can't do this. And I also have 
chewed through two of the nine dollar Apple Lightning to headphone adapter adapters, and they both have shorted out. Probably because I do things like catch the cable on my table saw sled. <laughs> but um, after paying $18 for two adapters and then having to buy a third, I was like, I'm just going to maybe try Bluetooth headphones, even though a lot of people complain about them. And I got a pair called the Job Remove Wireless Headset, and they're awesome. I was just like, wow, this is like, to be free of the cable was a sort of liberty I, I hadn't really ever considered. And it was just like pretty pretty nice. So, And they're only like, 60 bucks or something like that. So they're not, um, they're not like $400 bows, whatever, whatever is there, but they fit nicely. They're not huge. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I'm, I think I found new headphones. So <clears throat> you can find photos of our finished projects at our project site called projects.opposablepodcast.com. We also have lots of links in our show notes and we'll be posting project and other related stuff to our Instagram account. We've had a rash of new Instagram followers lately on the account. So I'm excited about that. Uh, thanks for checking us out there. Uh, you can also listen to episodes directly at opposablepodcast.com. Uh, if you'd like an Opposable Thumb sticker, just share an episode with a friend and let us know that you did that. And we'll send you one in the mail. Our uh, awesome Neon Thumb Resource logo was created by the Mighty Wolf Mask. He also just did the uh, logo that I, that I uh, posted up in one of my images. And so I'm ex- excited about that. Um, his work is at wolfmaskart.co.uk and he's a really great person and really great to work with. We'd like to give Nick Kantar and Adam Van Essen a shout out as our top Patreon supporters. Thank you, Nick and Adam. Uh, we also would like to give a shout out to Walter Cotundo and Cotundo Studios for being a new Patreon supporter. Uh, if you'd like to join those folks in our League of Patreon supporter badasses, just go to patreon.com slash opposable thumbs to sponsor us. Uh, our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Rita, thank you, thank you, thank you for being an awesome, awesome, awesome guest yeah, on sure. our podcast. Great challenge, too. Yeah, Thank you guys so much for for having me. I'm I've it was, it's been an honor and it's been really fun to see how you guys tackled the same challenge that I did and I'll be so interested to see what happens next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. We and we we I originally spoke with you quite a while ago, so it's been really great to think about having you on the show and now it's finally happened. So, oh, thank so you. <laughs> we'll post um uh a photo of Rita's drawings on our uh, project's website uh, so people can check that out. And are we all uh, doing the uh, photos of our curly hair or uh, straight hair or any kind of hair we got? Yeah, we can do that. Sure. <laughs> I have very Sweet. boring hair that's chemically treated, but I'll do my best. I think you, you may find I, I beat you in Blake's. We'll have to see. Oh, uh-huh. oh snap. Uh-huh. Challenge accepted. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now we need a very expensive, sensitive measuring device to determine the Blake, mm-hmm. Blake levels. <laughs> yep. Uh, Rita, do you have uh, anything you want to share with us, like your websites or upcoming shows or just work that you're doing? Uh, sure. Uh, you guys can check out, I guess, uh, more about my specific work, uh, both my my science-related work and my artwork on my website at RitaBlake.com, which is spelled R-I-T-A-B-L-A-I-K. 
com. And uh, you can also check out a lot more of the the science work and the science education and outreach work I do uh, at the California Nanosystems Institute website, which is cnsi.ucla.edu. And we have a lot of different public outreach events uh, happening throughout the year where we go to different places and get to talk to people about cool science stuff. And you'll always see me at any of those. So, uh, so maybe I'll get to meet some of you guys in person. Cool. Yeah, um, Taylor, you just had a show. Is that right? Me, I, I have one upcoming, the super secret ah. one. Uh, no, I've been I've been out of the game for a little bit. Just head, you know, nose to the grindstone, making the stuff. So get get ready. Going to be blasting back on the scene. <laughs> yeah, in in a in a surreptitious fashion. Yes. Ooh, sneaky. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure what yeah. you're thinking of, but maybe. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. Didn't you just? I thought. Didn't you you had something on a Wednesday and we had posted oh, that of two weeks ago? Yeah, that, I mean that was the talk I was giving about this this project. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, cool. cool. Mm-hmm. Is that um? Did they record it or anything? Yeah, or I've got a fifteen. It's a pretty short one. It's a little fifteen minute recording where I talk about the work and a bunch about temporary services, which was a group that oh. inspired, uh, you know, got me interested in meeting up art and prison and so forth. So um, yeah, check it out on my on my website. It's taylorhokinson dot com. Awesome. And I have a new YouTube channel. <clears throat> I have two subscribers. Yes, it's pretty rad. <laughs> um, What's the name of your it's channel? It's called. It's called Ah. Mm-hmm. That's A U G X exclamation point. And good luck finding it because it has two subscribers and is difficult to find if you search the word Ah. But you know, yeah, that's what we got going on. Rita, thanks for being a guest. It was awesome. Oh, thank you guys so much. It's been really fun. And, and we'll we'll do our best. Uh, to um, prove ourselves wrong. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Excellent. For the next episode. That's the yeah. first time I feel confident in a long time. Well, <laughs> Rob, Rob has one that I love. Rob, would you please? Sure. Grace us with this yeah, tale. Yeah, so, so, so I used to work at this place called Recaton, and I'm sure they're long out of business at this point. Maybe, I don't know. And they were in Lake Mary, Florida. And what they did is they sold, like, you'll remember in the 90s, I think particularly, there was a time where... Only 90s kids will remember. Yeah, that's true. There was a time <laughs> when, like, there was a lot of, like, CD adapters... And CD cleaning kits, and um, mm-hmm. oh, CD is in compact, compact disc. disc. Yes, I, I haven't I haven't thought of those in so long. I thought you meant CD as in like a CD. Oh element. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a CD company, <laughs> but um, yeah. ah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so they were really into this compact disc cleaning. So like, if you went into like a Best Buy, there would be this like rack of like compact disc cleaning things. And cassette tape, magnetic head cleaners, and all that kind of crap. And a lot mm-hmm. of, like, um, power adapters. So if you want... Because a lot of people at the time were putting portable compact displayers in their car and then, like, adapting it with this cassette tape adapter and stuff. Like, that whole realm of stuff. And they had been a company that developed in the 30s to make record player needles, and they sort of hobbled along ever since. But... Oh, this, this whole time, I thought this was when you were working at the place that made the... Um... Uh, when you were working at Funland, no, or whatever no, that was. No. <laughs> no, I didn't work at Funland. It wasn't called Funland, but we made kitty rides, and that was fun. But um, 
So the okay. so this Curious. machine, um, you, you know, when you go into, they don't sell them that so much, but they kind of do. Like you know, if you were to buy something retail, it comes in what they call a bubble pack or a blister pack. Yeah, blister. Yeah, pack. Mm-hmm. and so there's a modified version of a blister pack that has a card back. It's a card backing, but like um, plastic clamshell on the front. Um, maybe if you buy like a toothbrush these days, you know how it's like cardboard on the back. And so you like pop the toothbrush out of the back of the uh-huh. thing or a battery. Or battery. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that machine, uh, you sort of have these plastic shells and you lay them into the, um, device. And it's, it's called a carousel and the carousel is, you know, maybe six feet. It's a circle and it's maybe six or eight feet wide. And what happens is, is there's these pegs that, they screw into the face of the machine in order to um, create like a jig. It's like an alignment um, thing. Registration. Exactly. Pins. Thank you. Registration pins. Dang. Taylor's on it. Mm-hmm. So you want me just to take yeah, over yeah. here? Man? So, so, <laughs> so, and then what happens is you have people who stand there and they like are loading these, you know, cassette tape adapters into this plastic clamshell and then slapping a card down and they hit, they hit the button and the whole thing turns. But the thing is, is like any, uh, it's not designed particularly safely. And so what happens is, is someone will hit the button and the whole thing turns. But if you have two people working the machine at one time, if the other push- person pushes the button, well, the other person isn't aware of it, those registration pins will rake across the back of your hand <coughs> because you've got your hand stuck mm. in the machine. And it, it in at least two cases, it... It like degloved the person's <laughs> finger because their wedding band <gasps> or ring caught on the registration pin. Yeah, <gasps> and pulled their uh, pulled their finger darn near off. And so the machine got the 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 sort of workplace lore name of divorce court <laughs> <laughs> because it 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 was oh, yeah it was known for uh, breaking up marriages. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I I, didn't, I would work it, but I would not work it with someone else running the buttons. Nor nor should anyone yeah. else have. But people, it would get backed up because it was the end of the process, and so people would do it to try to catch up and then lose a finger. Oof! And there you have 